So, we're going to put a map up here. I want, I want to remind you that when you're reading the Bible, you want, to, you want to start by going, who was this talking to? What was the historical setting? Because if you can figure out who it was talking to, what the context was, then God applies it through the Holy Spirit to our lives. You can't bypass that. So we try to teach you here, and this isn't something novel. We've come across some secret. That in reading the Bible, you, you, you start with the beginning of a book, just like any other book or magazine article, and you read from the beginning to the end, and you do it more than once. And if you can, you get some background to help you understand who wrote it, who was it written to, why was it written, what are some of the main points, and then we apply it to our lives. And so we mentioned that John is the last book of the New Testament that the Holy Spirit inspired, probably written in the 90s. And John was writing to an area called Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And there were seven churches in this area. John ministered for years in Ephesus, so he was very familiar with these churches. But because of his Christian faith, remember, he had been banished to that island of Patmos. So John's on this island, this rocky island of Patmos. He's probably breaking rocks. And the Spirit of God gives him a vision because these seven churches are undergoing severe persecution. And so the Lord Jesus appears in chapter 1, remember, and he tells him that I am the one who's walking in the midst of these churches, and I have seven messengers, and I want to give you an evaluation, not only of the churches, but then I want to tell you what's coming to prepare them as Christians. And so interestingly, historians tell us that the route from Ephesus through Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, that John follows that order was actually like a Pony Express sort of mail route. So this would have been the normal way that people delivered messages. So we've been through the first four churches, and today we're going to do Sardis and Philadelphia. So if you will, you'll start with me in the, in the book of Revelation chapter 3. We have both the most severe censure, Sardis, and then the most encouraging church, the church at Philadelphia. Just saying, right? You guys are going, just saying. Okay, so let's start with the, the first seven verses, six verses. We're going to look at his message to the church at Sardis. He says, to the angel of the church in Sardis, write. Now remember, the angel could be a messenger or a literal angel. Remember, each time Jesus begins a letter, he takes something from his attributes in chapter 1 to highlight something that he's going to say to them. And so each time you read something of his attributes, try to go, wonder why he's saying that now. He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. Now, remember back in chapter 1, John said, I saw the Father, I saw the Son, and then he said, I saw the seven spirits of God. And some of you are going, oh no, I thought there was a trinity, not a octinity or a novinity. There's nine members. But most theologians believe that the term seven spirits of God is another, another way of describing the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Could be because seven is the number of perfection. Um, there's, maybe to magnify his, his power. But for, it, for whatever reason, Jesus is saying, I am the one who has the authority of the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Spirit proceeded from him. And then he says, I have the seven stars, which are the seven messengers. 
And stars, as we know, um, put out light. And churches are supposed to be lights in their community. So, let's see what he says to them. I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive. Oh, and you're dead. You're like, wait, wait, what? You have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. What in the world does that mean? Well, there were many people in this church who had made a profession of becoming a Christian. You don't become a Christian by osmosis. You don't become a Christian by going to church any more than you become a, oh, become a monkey by going to the zoo. So these were people who had made this step outwardly of saying, I want to become a Christian. They probably were baptized, so they were calling themselves Christians. But just because someone calls themselves a Christian does not necessarily mean that they are a Christian. We have a name for this in, in modern culture. We call this nominal Christians. Nominal is, means name. So we would say these are people who name themselves Christians. In other words, hey, what religion are you? Are you Jewish? No, I'm a Christian. We see many people in America, but particularly even in evangelical churches, who clearly call themselves Christians. So they have an external reputation, like, oh yeah, Joe's a Christian, Larry's a Christian. But then Jesus says, but you're dead. Now, there couldn't be much more scathing of a denunciation than to say, you're dead. Some would suggest that he's outright saying, you're not even saved. And that is possible. That is one of the teachings of the New Testament, that there are some people who claim to be Christians who are not. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus warned about this. He said, one day, some will stand in my presence and say, Lord, Lord, remember me? We, we, I did miracles. And he'll say, I never knew you. Now, a, a pastor is like a pharmacist. He's dispelling medications, both to himself and to others, and I want to make sure that the right people take the right medication. For those of you who are tender-hearted and worried about your salvation and feeling guilty because of the, the ways that you struggle and stumble, and, 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 and you're just like, I don't know how God could accept me, and you're praying to receive Christ over and over again, this is not talking about you. This is talking about people who go, yeah, I'm saved, but I have a secret life. I'm cheating on my wife. I lie. I, you know, I do my thing. It's just I have to look religious. When Jesus told those people in Matthew 7, depart from me, you have to keep reading. He said, depart from me, you who practice wickedness. And not only were they practicing wickedness, they weren't feeling any remorse for it. They were just worried about getting caught for it. So apparently within this church, there were what we would call nominal Christians, people who called themselves Christians. And sometimes people like that, all we can do is put a question mark over their head. I'm not going to tell them, and, and never in the New Testament will you see Paul telling people who are living in sin, you're not Christians. So for example, in 1 Corinthians 5, he goes, you got a guy committing incest. He says, if I was you, <clears throat> he goes, you need to put him out of your midst. This is what you, what you need to do. But if he's a so-called Christian, he didn't say, you can't be a Christian and do that. He said, he's a so-called Christian. And so today, we can only say to people who profess to be Christians, if you profess to be a Christian, 
but your life is the exact opposite of a Christian, it's on you to examine yourself. That's what Paul told the Corinthians. I keep warning you to repent and you won't repent. Examine yourself. Second Peter chapter one says, if you claim to be a Christian, but you don't have any godliness, you're not striving for moral excellence, no love, no knowledge, no perseverance, no faith. He says, then either you're blind and you forgot you're really a Christian, or you should make your calling and election sure. So let me make sure I, I summarize this pastorally. If you're struggling to know whether you're a Christian, the best thing to do is to talk to someone. We have lots of pastors, elders, and people who can disciple you here. It's not unusual for Christians to have doubts. But this passage, the Holy Spirit may be piercing you right in the heart and going, this is you. You know that you have no real interest or desire in doing the will of God. You just call yourself a Christian. Second Peter, Timothy 3 describes it this way. They hold to a form of godliness, but they deny its power. So there were some in this church who had a question mark over their head. So Jesus doesn't leave them hanging. He says, look, you need a new reality. Your reality is just your lips. What you need is a reality that's backed up by your life. So what should they do? He says in verse 2, wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which are about to die, which says, you know, maybe they're not, maybe he's being metaphorical. They were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Now, this idea of waking up is a theme throughout the New Testament. Jesus told his disciples, watch, 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 right? Literally, remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, can you not stay awake? So spiritually, it's incredibly easy to fall asleep, to lose our way, stop praying. We're not reading our Bible regularly. We're allowing sin in our life. So he goes, wake up. But then he says, strengthen the things that remain. Now, it's hard to say what does he mean by that because it says, I have not found your deeds completed or fulfilled in the sight of my God. In other words, what evidence is there that you love Christ? What evidence is there that, that you're trying to help others? One, one commentary said, strengthen the things that remain. And this is a great reminder. As you look around, some of you have a strong faith. You need to know that there's some teeter-totter people here who are on the verge of bailing or might not even be saved. So we all have the privilege and responsibility of trying to find them and strengthen them. You know, one of our uh, parishioners and I were at lunch this week and we had a Bible on the table and someone came up and said, you guys reading the Bible? And, and it turned out as we talked with this person, it sounded like they, they, they might or might not be a Christian, but they knew they were away from the Lord. And they wanted, they were weeping and, and, and being drawn. And so I literally said to her, may, may, may this strengthen you and, and bring, you, bring you close to Christ. So <clears throat> verse three, remember what you received and heard and keep it and repent. John Stott said, the shortest path to getting back with God is to remember. Just simply going, anytime you use this phrase, I used to, and it was something godly and good in your Christian past, if it's a used to, that's probably a problem. I used to get up and read my Bible. I used to be really careful about what I watched on TV. I used to share my faith. I used to be a lot nicer to my wife. I used to hell or high water go to church. Anytime you have used to, 
That's kind of a sign like, okay, something has to happen. And then Jesus gives a warning. If you don't wake up, I'll come like a thief and you won't know at what hour I will come upon you. Now here, I don't think he's talking about the second coming. Frequently in these letters, Jesus will say, I'll come to you, but it's not always at the second coming. He said to the church at Ephesus, I'll come and put your candlestick out. So I think this would be some form of discipline. So the encouraging thing here is, God never abandons a believer. If you're born again, Jesus will never kick you off the team. He loves you and he will love you to the end. If that wasn't the truth, I'd quit preaching because if it was up to us to hold on to Jesus, we'd all be off the team. But he that began a good work in us will, will perform it. But, but the Bible says that those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines us. So when people tell you, God loves you just as you are, if you're away from Christ and you're a child of God, he loves you too much to, to leave you that way. So he will come to you. He'll do what he needs to do. He'll speak. If he needs to, he'll spank. And if he has to, he'll slay. You're like, what? He wants to take us home and crown us, but the Bible does teach he will crown us and take us home. He's not up there looking for a reason. He's extremely patient. But let's not confuse his patience for his absence. But then John gives some encouraging words. He goes, I'm not saying this is true of the whole church. He said, you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. Now, again, that's a metaphor. What does that mean? Normally, soiling your garments in Scripture is to, is to fall into sin, particularly sexual sin. But in James chapter 1, it says, do you think you're religious? He says, if you can't even hold your tongue, if you're screaming and shouting and yelling at people, you curse and, and you can't control your tongue. He goes, your religion's worthless. In other words, your faith isn't Christ-centered. So he goes, you want to know what pure religion is? He says, help or orphans and widows. And then he says, and keep yourself unstained by the world. So the world is a filthy cesspool in which we live. And it's awful easy to get dipping back into it. It's not them splashing us. It's us pursuing the world. And so there's a beautiful picture in Zechariah 4 where Zechariah sees a vision of Joshua, the high priest, and, and he's stained with excrement all over his outfit. But in the Lord's mercy, he says, take that away and, and, and put a festal robe on him, and he's clothed in white. And so the analogy here is as a Christian, when you put your faith in Christ, your sins and my sins were, were all washed away. His blood ran red, right? And my sins were washed white, and so I'm clean. But once I've been cleaned, I need to keep checking my heart. And when I see I'm stained again, repent confess, return, and, 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 and seek purity, and seek faithfulness to Christ. He says, they'll walk with me in white because they're worthy. Now, none of us are worthy of heaven. Any worthiness that we have, it would be like the moon going, I should, I should go to heaven because of my light. And God would say, dude, you're just borrowing that. Your light's just the sun. So none of us are worthy in the sense of saying, Look at me, I'm worthy of... No, we're worthy if we respond to the grace of God. He's the one that makes us worthy. He gives us the glory. So, Jesus says, look, here's a promised reward. If you, if you overcome, you'll be clothed in white garments and I won't erase your name from the book of life. Now, you're like, did, did John have to say that? 
That scares me. It sounds like I could lose my salvation. I wish we had more time to talk about this, but I will say this. There are numerous books mentioned. There's a book of remembrance in Malachi. Way back in Moses, he said, blot out my name from your book. In Revelation 20, it says God's going to open the books of judgment. But there's one book called the book of life. And the Bible says if your name's not in the book of life, you're going into the lake of fire. But I don't have time right now to develop this, but I will say this. If you are a Christian, you cannot lose your salvation. If you are genuinely a Christian, Romans 8 says everyone that God calls, he justifies. Everyone he justifies, he glorifies. Nobody's lost. So whatever this means, it does not mean you lose your salvation. Perhaps it would mean the proof that you weren't a true Christian is if you don't turn and start living like a believer. So Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear. So you're like, man, that was a beatdown. But now he turns to the church of Philadelphia and he says, this is the most, this, this, these guys get the best report. Now remember, as they're going to each church, the church at Ephesus, they get theirs, but then they hear everybody else's. The church of Philadelphia, the other four churches already heard theirs, and now suddenly they're like, well, what about us? So whereas the first one was the remedy for a false reality and, 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 and the, the need for a new reality and the reward of changing your ways so that you're really living and turning from sin and confessing your faith and living for the Lord, promises his reward. Now, in, in the Philadelphia church, John's going to talk about three things, opportunity, sincerity, and security. So look at verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, again, Jesus always says something about himself, he who is holy and true. So he speaks both of his deity and of his authenticity. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But then Jesus speaks about his own authority. He says, I have the key of David. Now you go, wait a minute. <clears throat> How many keys you got on that ring, Jesus? You ever see people, we used to call them nerds. I hope there's nobody here. They'd have like a key ring with like 900 keys on it, a pen, pocket pen, you know, a, a beeper and all. And he was kind of like, dude. Now, of course, if you're a maintenance person, I hope that didn't insult anybody. But it is kind of funny. Sometimes people pull out a key ring, you're like, what do you own, like 500 homes? But how many keys does Jesus have? In Revelation 1, he says, I have the keys of death and Hades. Here he says, I have the key of David. You're like, is that just another of the same thing? Well, this goes back probably to Isaiah chapter 22. In Isaiah chapter 22, Isaiah is led by the Lord to speak of a guy named Eliakim. Eliakim was a messenger between the Assyrians and, 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 and the Jews. He was just a faithful man of God among the people of God. And God said of Eliakim, I'm going to place upon him the key of the house of David. And so what we would probably say is that Eliakim was a picture of Christ. He was, he was an Old Testament type of Jesus. So Jesus says, I have the key of David. Now at another occasion, remember he said to Peter, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. But let's try to go, well, what do you think he means here by the key of David when he says, who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one will open? 
several commentaries that I consulted said, when you think of, of, of Jesus and keys and opening doors, think of two things. Number one, the first door is the door into the kingdom of God. Jesus has the keys of David. In other words, if you're going to get into heaven, it ain't going to be because you know the code. It's going to be because Jesus unlocks the door and lets you in, right? Jesus said, I am the door. If you enter by me, you'll be saved. I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to God but through me. So whenever you hear people say, all religions are different doors into heaven, I go, eh. And I don't mean that arrogantly because I didn't say it. Jesus said, I'm the door. So, so the first baby he's saying here is, I'm the one who determines who goes into heaven. But secondly, in the Bible, the Lord also opens doors of opportunity. Sometimes the New Testament speaks of open doors to do ministry. And I think Jesus is probably implying both here. He's saying to this church at Philadelphia, you guys are doing good, and I've opened the door into the kingdom for you, but as soon as you enter the door of salvation, the Lord then opens the door of service and says, now get busy. What is this opportunity that he opens for them? Let's look. He says, I know your deeds, and I have put before you an open door, which no man can shut. Now, when Paul spoke of this, he was in Ephesus at the time, and he was having many, many opportunities to reach people and witness to people, and people were getting saved. He said, a wide door of ministry has been opened, but he said, there's a lot of adversaries. And so he may be telling this church, even though you're in a persecuted area, I'm stirring the people of Philadelphia, and you're going to get a lot of chances to witness. Now, you know who the first people they would be witnessing to? The Jews. And the irony is, is that the Jews thought that they had the keys. If you don't come to the synagogue and worship our God, you are lost. You Gentiles are godless pagans. We're the real deal. And the Lord goes, no, I'm going to turn that around. Look what he says. He says, I put before you an open door, verse 8, which no one can shut, but because you have a little power, now I don't know what he means by that. Maybe they were poor. Maybe there's only a few of them. But he says, because you have kept my word and not denied my name. Now watch, watch what's going to happen. These Jews were the ones that were persecuting the Christians. He says, behold, I will call those, cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Now, can you imagine that? The Jews are prancing around, we're of God, we're the way to heaven. And God goes, no, you're not. You're the synagogue of Satan. You're liars. Sometimes Jesus didn't mince words, right? They said to Jesus, we have Abraham for our father. John chapter 8, he goes, no, you don't. You got the devil for your father. Because if Abraham is your father, you'd love me. And anybody who doesn't have... Uh, that doesn't love Christ because his heart has been changed is of the devil. So, but here's what's going to happen. Jesus is actually saying, these wicked Jews, hypocrites, I'm actually going to save some of them. You go, Tom, where does it say that? Well, look what he says. I will cause, now it's literally, I will cause of the synagogue. So I'm going to say some of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you. Now, you could say here that he's just saying, on judgment day, 
you're going to stomp on them, right? One day they're going to find out that, come and kiss my feet, and then you're going to go into hell. And you know what? That is going to happen a little bit with the devil. In Genesis 3, God said, I'm going to crush Satan under the Messiah's feet. But in Romans 16, Paul says, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. So maybe Jesus, after he crushes Satan, he goes, come on, guys, put your foot on here. But I don't think that's what he means here. I think he's saying some of these Jews are going to come and bow at your feet. They're going, to, they're going to come and acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah. They're going to join you. They're going to become Christians. I've put before you an open door. And some of these enemies of yours, it's like 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, if an unbeliever comes in and he sees that God is in your midst, he'll fall on his face and worship and say, surely God is there. And what a joy it is when we see somebody who's like, you Christian idiots, all of a sudden goes, you're right. These people are right. And they come and get saved. So the Lord puts before them opportunity. But then he says in verse 10, because you've kept the word of my perseverance, I'll keep you from the hour of testing, which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. Now, because of time, I'm going to come back to that verse next week. Okay? One, one view of this means we're not going to go through the tribulation I personally don't think that's what it's talking about here. First of all, this was written to a specific church in the first century. How in the world would that be any consolation to them to go, don't worry, 2,000 years from now, you won't have to go through the tribulation. So I think there was an immediate application of this, and we'll come back to that next week because we only have the last church. But then he says this, I'm coming quickly, hold fast what you have in order that no one takes your crown, and then here's the reward. He who overcomes, now here's an interesting backdrop. Philadelphia was famous for earthquakes. You're like, what do you mean? They were the San Francisco of the, of the East? Yep, they were famous for earthquake, earthquakes. People moved out of Philadelphia because they were tired of earthquakes. So Jesus says, if you overcome, I'll make you a pillar in the temple of my God. And this pillar ain't going to be shaken. In other words, you have great security. You will not go out from it anymore. And I will write upon him the name of God, the name of the city of God, the new Jerusalem, which comes out of heaven. And we'll talk about that in chapter 20. And I will write my new name. And again, I don't have time to really develop this other than to say these are promises of security. Just hold your faith. Trust the Lord. Even if you have to die, do what's right. Turn away from sin. And one day... Your narrow pilgrimage will open up into a heavenly paradise. So I want to close with just two, real, two quick thoughts. Number one, what's your reality? You know, everybody says, hey man, COVID's making a new reality. I think we all need to check our Christian reality. Is your Christianity a real Christianity? Or just you have a name? When it's all said and done, a lot said a little done. If that sounds like your Christianity, where you don't think about the will of God, you don't try to please God, you don't repent when you sin, you're not engaged in anything for Christ, then you just have to soul search and say, Lord, either I'm, I'm just about comatose and blind, wake me up, or Lord, save me. But if you're a struggling Christian, this is not a threat, God's going to kill you. But he's saying, wake up. 
Come on, you could do this. But then lastly, as Christians, if you're a Christian, aren't you glad that the Lord opened the door and you're already in? We used to sing a song to children, there's one door and only one, and yet its sides are two, inside and outside. On which side are you? The Bible calls unbelievers outsiders. If you know you're a Christian this morning, praise the Lord, he opened the door and brought you in. It wasn't because you kicked the door down, right? But he didn't just give you the keys to enter the door and then sit. He gave us the keys and opened the door to serve. And I believe that we live in a time with the COVID and confusion and chaos and pandemic and problems and divisions in the church. This is a great opportunity to serve, to strengthen, to pray, to go after all these people who only God knows where they are. Those of you out there, why you're not here, if you're somewhere else, let us know. But the Lord is putting before us an opportunity to serve. But what good is serving if I'm soiled? So would you join me as we jump in the Holy Ghost washing machine as we just did with communion and sincerely just say, Lord, cleanse me from anything that soils me and help me to carefully walk in trust and faith. Jesus is full of mercy. The blood never loses its power. And if we're far from God, he didn't move. So let's draw near to him this morning. Father, thank you for your words. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you that you love us. If there's anybody here who knows this morning that they're just calling themselves a Christian, but they know they're not, may they repent and come and talk to one of us today. Forgive us, Lord, when we stumble and we stain ourselves. Thank you that you've put before us an open door. Lord, may we seek you and love you and serve you more until you come in Jesus' name. Amen.